Christopher Kelly is a computer scientist and pro mountain biker who now works full-time as a health hacker. He's a co-founder of Nourish Balance Thrive. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. You are giving a talk at QCon San Francisco called Debug Me. What is your talk about? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> it's about it's the, about the experience that I had as a software engineer, the things that I went through. So maybe it's best if I tell you about that. Um, you know, going back a few years, as you can tell from my accent, I'm British. I came here from London and uh, it was a big tech company, Yahoo, that moved me here. And I noticed not long after moving here and starting working here that my, <clears throat> excuse me, my health really started to disintegrate. I, I put on quite a lot of weight. I started developing brain fog. Um, I had terrible bloating. My libido disappeared. Um, all kinds of fatigue. I was so, so tired in the day. And then I couldn't sleep at night. And my life was just a complete train wreck. And it took me years and years to figure this out. And I think part of the reason why it took me so long to figure it out was because the doctors were actually worse than useless. You know, it's the, it's the most obvious thing you would think of when you're not feeling very well to go to the doctor. But for the problems that I just described, the doctors do not have good solutions. And eventually I figured it out. And the diet and lifestyle piece is huge. Like you can't just eat crap food and expect to feel good, at least not once you hit 35 years old, I think. So did your problems stem from moving from the UK to the United States or was that just a coincidence? No, I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, there were signs, but it was really once I moved to the US. I think the US is a particularly difficult environment in which to thrive. You have to be really careful, I think. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, the, the, the early signs were there. So you write that technologists are now sicker than ever, fatter than ever, and more tired than ever. Maybe you could use your own personal experience as an example to explain why this phenomenon is occurring. Yeah, so I think that the reason the phenomenon is occurring is because people have been given bad information about what they should be eating. And uh, when, the, when problems occur, they go to the doctor and the doctors are basically powerless to help them. Like you have to present with something which is clearly a disease before a doctor can order a test, before they can write a prescription, before they can really do anything for you. But the signs and symptoms, they come long before. So say you presented the doctor and you're just feeling tired. Well, the doctor's going to say to you, well, isn't everyone tired? I'm tired right now. Like you're not getting enough sleep. That's end of story. But it could be something much more serious. You could have some kind of mitochondrial dysfunction going on inside the cell that you could fix right now but the doctor's never going to test for that they can't the, the, the insurance system is not set up for that and so you know i think this a problem is happening a lot to a lot of um you know a lot of different industries i mean the computer programmers that were the people that i saw and i think because they spend so much time sitting and so much time indoors and maybe they're not the most motivated crowd to get out and run and bike and lift weights and and, and be super active. I think they're particularly vulnerable to these types of, of, of health complaints. Um, so I totally agree with you. I, I'd mm -hmm. love to hear more about the arc of your journey from Yahoo. So you came here, you came to the United States to join Yahoo, I think you're mm -hmm. saying. And what, what happened after that? Yeah, so really I fell out of love with Yahoo. I kind of, I got to the point where my brain fog was pretty bad. I was really tired, so I wasn't very motivated. And I was in a really dull part of the of the business, you know, like they they had me on registration and login. And um, 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but but nobody ever congratulates you on being able to log into a website, right? The only the only time you ever hear from people is when it doesn't work. So it wasn't it wasn't a very fulfilling job, but really the deal was when I first came over and started working for Yahoo that you know I would do that for a while and and just help them out and and then I would progress on into the company, you know, onwards and upwards. And because of the fatigue and the brain fog that set in, the onwards and upwards thing just never happened, you know. And so uh, eventually my relationship with them deteriorated and I couldn't stand the commute anymore. I was commuting from San Francisco to Sunnyvale, which is a, a long way on a very busy road that I'm sure many of you will know. And, and so I ended up leaving uh, Yahoo and, and started working for, like you for Amazon, actually, or an Amazon subsidiary in the Presidio in San Francisco. And, and, and that was a great job. And I stayed there for a while. And eventually I moved on into finance and started working for a quantitative hedge fund in Walnut Creek in California. And um, that was a lovely job too. You know, it was a, a group of people who are an incredible family, some of the most talented mathematicians in the country, incredibly smart people. And yet I see them just like physically, they're afflicted by some of the same issues that I were. And, and even though they're so, so smart, they're not able to figure this out. What, what keeps them from being able to figure it out? And what were you doing that allowed you to discover the root cause of your brain fog and your other health issues? So, you know, I don't really have time to get into all of the details because it's kind of, there's so many things going on. But one of the main ones I had going on was prediabetes. So, you know, we've all been told that um, fat causes heart disease and we're all going to have a heart attack if we eat saturated fat. And so we've all been avoiding it for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years even and that information is just flat out wrong. There is no evidence to support that hypothesis. It's just wrong. And so this low the fat... the diet heart hypothesis, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So, um, you know, necessarily if you eat a low fat diet, it's a high carbohydrate diet. And then the, the high carbohydrate diets in many people cause problems of insulin resistance and blood sugar control. And I think, you know, a lot of people that are experiencing terrible moods, um, uh, sorry, energy swings due to these blood sugar imbalances. So that's something that I did that was so, so helpful in the beginning was just to start checking my blood sugar. And you can do this. You can go onto Amazon. You can buy a $7 finger stick test and start checking your blood glucose. And I think first thing in the morning is a very interesting time to check. And uh, then throughout the day, like, go eat your canteen food, right? Go to the Yahoo canteen and buy one of those big sandwiches and a cookie and then check your blood glucose 30 minutes, an hour later, two hours later, and see what numbers you find. And this whole process of debugging yourself, so that's where the title of my talk came from for QCon, is almost the same as the process that developers go through on a daily basis to fix complex systems of software and debugging and all of that good stuff. The only difference is you're now debugging yourself, right? Let's just run a blood glucose check on myself and see whether it, it, it's sane. Like, it's, what is this number? Is it affecting my health or not? It's like such an easy test to perform. So if I'm a developer and I'm sitting at a desk job somewhere in San Francisco or anywhere, really, mm-hmm. um, what are some, you know, if, and, 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 and if I identify with these types of problems that you're describing, this mm-hmm. brain fog, you know, you, you tell a story about how you were sitting at your hedge fund job and you know this the, you see the sunlight streaming in outside you're kind of longing to be outside and in 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 the meantime you just are descending into this post lunch 
brain fog after <laughs> eating a sandwich uh, and, you know, you've had oatmeal for breakfast and uh, which, you know, just had caused some blood sugar spikes. And so what... What can what are some small incremental maybe even you know philosophical changes? How can t- technologists that are having these sorts of problems begin to sort of reconfigure their thinking, or like should they be just reading a little bit more, or how do they ease themselves into this? Because I know this is you know it's I, I think a lot of technologists do realize they have some sort of problem or mm-hmm. a collection of problems. But it's like the it's so daunting to even begin to think about it that it's like really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that I've gotten into this, and I think this would be really helpful for all engineers, is to order your own blood test. So there's a problem with the way that the doctors work at the moment in that, you, like I said, you, you need to be presenting with a disease before they're willing to run tests. But you don't have to wait for the doctor to get to the point where he's decided you've got a disease before you do that. Like you can go on to life extension and order yourself what's called a healthy aging panel that has hemoglobin A1C, it has fasting insulin, it has glucose, it has triglycerides. You can check all these markers. And then once you have this data in front of you, suddenly you will care. Like if I just were to tell you to go, okay, go do some research on uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, you'd be like, eh. you'd kind of be reading the first paper and you'd probably lose interest before you finished even the abstract. If I've just told you that your fasting insulin is 26, then, you know, you're going to find some information and it's really going to stick, right? This is like something that affects you. It's going to change your life by understanding this information. And you will just like be completely engrossed by the learning process. Yeah, this is almost like the programmer that sits down in front of the tutorial does the tutorial and sees instant results and then becomes very interested in the language or the paradigm that they're working with. Yeah, exactly. So everyone's done it, right? I can remember um, the first time I book a, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Python programming language. And I can remember the first time I was pretty young, probably before I even went to university, the first time I picked up a book on Python, didn't really know what I was doing. I just started reading it like it was a novel. And then of course, within 20 pages, I'm like, I, I, I didn't even read that last page. Like what's going on here? And yet you pick up the interpreter and you start writing little snippets of code and seeing what the answer yields. And suddenly you're hooked. And like the book is like this incredibly valuable resource. So you just keep going back to, back to the prompt, back to the book, back to the prompt, back to the book. Well, as you can do the same thing with your own body by running these lab tests for yourself and then keep running them, right? Okay, so you just found out that your fasting insulin is 27. Well, go do some research on a low carbohydrate diet and eat that way for a month and then redo the blood panel and see what your fasting insulin is now and see how you feel. Like, are you sleeping better? Do you feel more energy during the day? Has your sex drive improved? Do you have less bloating after meals? So like kind of there's all these qualitative things as well. But the process of like developing and debugging and the iteration that goes on is I think is very similar to with the, the kind of the development or the software engineering process. I'd like to continue with that metaphor. Programming and code often has error handling to catch problems before they cascade mm-hmm. into something larger. How do our bodies implement error handling? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the symptoms I found, I don't think it does that very well, honestly. Like now you've pointed that out. It's a fantastic thought, but I don't think that it does very well because, you know, I at the time, I wouldn't have told you that I was tired. Like if you just pulled me to one side while I was working for Yahoo and said, are you tired right now? And I said, no, nah, not really. 
But I really was. And it was only after I wasn't tired. That's when I realized, you know, with hindsight and the same with the brain fog, like somebody with brain fog, I'm not sure they're that aware of the fact they've got brain fog, you know? So the symptoms, I, I don't think they're that reliable. I mean, sometimes they're really obvious. Like I had a lot of bloating and it was clearly there was something going on there. But um, the symptoms are not always that reliable in, in guiding you. And so, um, you know, quantifying things with, with blood chemistry or saliva or urine or stool is, I think, much more helpful. But that's a really good question. I don't think there is a lot of error handling or safety measures. Okay, so preventative health is definitely important, but what about people who are already sick? They already have some chronic health issue. What is an avenue for these people other than the traditional approach of going to doctors? You know, like like I know mm-hmm. I know certain people. You know, they'll have a chronic health issue and. They'll be going to doctors on a regular basis, and like you said, you know they'll they'll be getting no results. That can be kind of a scary uh, a scary situation to be in. You know, you maybe you have a doctor who's prescribing you, you know, all kinds of pills, and and it's not doing anything for you. And you know, what's the solution there? I mean, the solution is for you to take charge. So, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but I certainly have. You know, especially have at the been, head. Certainly. Yeah. So, um, I mean, well, the situation specifically I mean is imagine somebody's given you a task to do, you know, a job, a programming job to do, and you're kind of floundering, you're taking too long over it. And you come back with an answer that the person who asked for the job to be done isn't really satisfied with. And they're sort of, they kind of slap you out of the way and say, look, I'm going to do this, just forget about it. And they do, you know, and then you look at their solution afterwards and you're like, oh yeah, kind of, maybe I was being a bit dumb. Well, this is the same thing going on with your doctor. And, and so if it's really important, then, you know, nobody cares about this issue more than you do, right? Not your mom, not your girlfriend, not your doctor. It's, it's really down to you to care about it and, you know, take charge and, and make sure that the, the, you know, the right thing happens. Right. So it's the personal autonomy that, Mm -hmm. uh, that needs to, needs to take part. Mm -hmm. What are the advances in computer science and software engineering that are allowing us better ability to monitor and regulate our health? Are there actual advances, or is it, is this more of a philosophical sea change? Yeah, so um, the computer science, you know, I don't think it's been well utilized in, in health, honestly. I mean, not in the way that I see. So I would love to... So I now work with a medical doctor and, um, in fact, two medical doctors. And my wife is a food scientist. And we've been running labs on hundreds of people. And there's really no good way. Like, so the reports, they come back. They're not standardized. They're not, they're not in a format that allows me to pass the raw data. And there's no standard database that I can use. And so I've been doing lots of work to try and create those tools. But, you know, obviously my time is limited and um, I've only gotten so far with that. And, um, yeah, so I think, you know, there's that there. I mean, people will probably be thinking about things like Fitbit and, you know, like Inside Tracker and maybe Wellness FX, which is good software that can perhaps help with some problems. Um, but, you know, I've seen people get really good results without caring about any of those things. And, um the things that you need to do in order to be fit and healthy, like you don't really need a computer to tell you that, right? You can just, like, 
Um, so eating a nutrient-dense diet that's free of things that cause lots of people allergic reactions, um, like gluten, for example, you know, that's something I think that, that everybody needs to figure out what their food sensitivities are. And the paleo diet, um, for people that haven't heard about it, is, um, is an excellent place to start doing some research and, or an excellent experiment for you to do to see if you get good results with. And then um, walking, it's like something that none of us do enough of. And I really don't think you can do too much walking. And then uh, lifting heavy things, uh, weightlifting and uh, stress reduction. So there's an app called Headspace Guided Meditation. I think it's a fantastic tool for managing and better coping with stress. And so, you know, these things, like, I don't really see that computer science has had a huge impact on those, you know, like, you, do, you, you, and I, you don't really need a computer program to tell you that you need to do them. Got it. So let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about diet. First mm -hmm. of all, what is gluten? Gluten is a protein, one of the proteins which is found in grains or primarily wheat. And uh, for people like me, so later on I found out that I have, there's no gold standard for celiac disease. And celiac disease is um, a disease of severe gluten intolerance. And uh, there's no real gold standard for diagnosing this condition. But what you can so it's do more is more like you a can, collection of symptoms. Yeah, it's like a collection of signs and symptoms. I mean, there are some lab tests which can be helpful. And um, I certainly know that I have the, um, so there's a, a gene called the HLA gene. And um, I, I certainly have the, uh, some of the HLA genes which all celiacs have, but that's not conclusive evidence that I'm celiac. And I certainly know that uh, when I eat gluten, I get, you know, I'm running to the bathroom within half an hour. So there's a really clear sign and symptom there that I have a problem with it. Um, and I think a lot of people, they, they're eating this protein and um, they don't even know that, that, you know, you might not be sent running straight to the bathroom. You know, you might just get fatigue that kind of never really ends, you know, because you're eating the thing every day. And so that might be your only symptom. And, and really the gold standard is to stop eating it for a month and see if your symptoms improve. Do you have any explanations for why there is this supposed epidemic of gluten sensitivity? Yeah, so um, that's a, a really complicated question. I think the, I think there's a lot of things going on. So I know that um, just the general health of our gut is affected by a lot of different variables, and not all of them we can measure. Um, so the collection of microbes that live in our gut um, outnumber human cells by a factor of 10, which is quite an incredible fact when you think about it. So there's 10 times as many uh, microbial cells as there are human cells. And those microbial cells, they have a huge impact on our digestive health. And there's also genetic factors that make a difference. Like there's some, some other genes which affect the quality of the mucous membrane that lives, that, that coats the enterocytes that line the GI tract. And if your mucosal membrane is weak, then I think that too would make you more sensitive to uh, foods which contain gluten. And then, of course, there's things like, so I'm a pro mountain biker. I spend a ton of time doing um, long bike rides. And I know that when you do long, say, you, say you're a runner and you go out for, you know, you run for an hour. Well, you're going to remove the blood supply to your gut by 80% for that hour. And so that's quite a serious ischemic injury to your gut. And so that absolutely could affect your, your food sensitivity status. And then even stress as well. Say you're under a ton of stress at work. You've got a deadline, maybe you've pulled a couple of all-nighters. That could totally affect everything with your gut health. So there's so many different variables going on 
it's really hard to pin down and debug the problem. One thing um, I but, find interesting about the gut mm-hmm. stuff with regard to gluten is people will often say, oh, you know, we've been consuming gluten for thousands of years. We've obviously evolved uh, an ability to deal with it. Um, but the thing is, like, you know, even in one human lifetime, there is an entire gut ecosystem within that human that is undergoing its own Mm-hmm. evolutionary process so so even in the life cycle of one human being there's actually a ton of evolution going on throughout that human's life so mm-hmm. it's really hard to pinpoint the the evolutionary nature of you know whether we should be sensitive to gluten or whether we should not be sensitive to it from this raw biological evolutionary standpoint just because it's too complex and so i like the more simple explanation of like let's a b test mm-hmm. are are you sick with gluten or without it and if you're sick with it then just like you know maybe consider cutting it out or cutting down on it Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's easy for you as an engineer to quantify this change, right? You don't have to just rely on the symptoms. You could, you could, um, you know, have some blood drawn and have a look at your C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is a, um, it's an acute phase reactant. So what that means is, is a protein that's produced by your liver when there's inflammation. And so I think gluten is an inflammatory protein that's in many people's diets. And Certainly for me, I saw a clear reduction in my C-reactive protein when I stopped eating it. And so that's kind of another clue. So you don't have to rely on your symptoms, you know, or, um, you know, other things. You can, you can just actually measure it. So what about corn or rice? Yeah, so corn and rice um, can present some of the same problems as, as gluten. And I think, so logically, when you first start thinking about this problem, it makes sense to me and to a lot of engineers, I think, to like try and remove things one at a time, right? So, okay, let's try gluten. No, still don't feel any better. I'm still pretty tired. Probably maybe it wasn't the gluten. Okay, well, let's just change that one variable, put that variable back. Now let's try try corn. And now let's try. It doesn't work like that. Like the thing that you have to do to make this experiment work is to just remove everything which could be suspicious, Right. So the way to think about it is imagine you've just sprained your ankle and, you know, if maybe you stopped playing hockey on it, but you carried on playing tennis. Like how long would it take for that sprained ankle to heal? Or maybe you stopped walking, but you kept running. I don't know. Like it's just never going to heal. You have to like take all of the weight off of that sprained ankle and allow for a period of healing. And then you can experiment with reintroducing things. So I think that's the way to do it is to just you know, get yourself a copy of a really good paleo book. Um, Chris Cresser has a good one. It's called Your Personal Paleo Code, I believe. And then there's another good one called It Starts With Food. And there's tons of good ones out there. So just read one of those books and then dive into it. Do your experiment. Be squeaky clean, like no corn, no rice, no dairy, no wheat for a whole month. And then once you're feeling good and you will be feeling better, I almost guarantee it, then start experimenting with reintroducing things. Okay, one at a time, like corn or rice. Like, is that making any difference? And then, um, you know, you're going to no- then know going forward for the rest of your life, like which foods are probably best avoided for you. So what are the tenets of the paleo diet? If a programmer, an engineer, you know, engineers on the bright side, um, you know, probably have a decent amount of dispensable income. So if they want to make some some dramatic or somewhat dramatic dietary change, they ha- at least have the financial resources to mm-hmm. implement 
those types of changes. So what can, you know, a, an engineer that's currently, you know, eating lots of Chipotle and, uh, you know, oatmeal for breakfast and these things that, uh, you know, maybe some sort of conventional wisdom has taught them, oh, this is fine to have, but the more paleo mindset or you, the type of philosophy that you're espousing, you know, that says, eh, maybe this stuff is not so great. What are the what are the dietary shifts that you should make? And also, what is the paleo diet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the paleo diet, um, it's really, it's, so the problem with the paleo diet is it doesn't actually define a diet, right? There's no, you can't go Google the paleo diet in the same way as you can Google the Python programming language and have a fairly standardized answer to that question. Um, really, the, the paleo diet is an idea. It's a hypothesis. And I think Lauren Cordain was the scientist that really did most of the good work. But there are now thousands of scientists that have done um, a lot of excellent work on this idea. And, and the idea is that at some point in our not so distant evolutionary past, the introduction of modern agriculture and the grains that came with it led to a, a rapid demise of our health. And like all hypotheses, it's just an idea. It's not, you know, we're not, the idea is not to then go and perform some paleo reenactment. So maybe you've read something in, you know, one of you know, a big publication or a newspaper or something that was a damning condemnation of the, of the paleo diet. And usually there's a straw man argument right at the start of that article, right? So they're trying to tell you something about the paleo diet, which actually isn't true. And so, um, yeah, looking to people like Lauren Cordain, I think is um, really helpful. And um, so in terms of what can engineers do to try out the paleo diet, what are some tips that you have? Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, the thing to try, the first thing that you need to eliminate, I think, is wheat and dairy. Right. So um, just do the experiment um, rather than having oatmeal for breakfast just try bacon and eggs or leftovers. Leftovers are great. So that's a really good tip is like stop thinking about the different uh, foods for different times of day. You know, people think, oh, I have to have oatmeal for breakfast or I have to have eggs for breakfast. Just do away with that association and um, just eat whatever food that you have available on hand. Um, and I think that's um, you know really, really useful. What are the typical food groups that a paleo-friendly diet can consume are we talking about just like steak and vegetables all the time or yeah so not necessarily so yeah the predominant things that you focus on are um meats so preferably organic non-gmo meats there's some problems with the types of meats that you might see on the on the, the counter at safeway with the way that the animals are reared and so i think it's helpful to um source your meats kind of from a local farmer or maybe a farmer's market or something. So high quality meats, you don't need to worry about anything being lean. Um, Fatty cuts of meat are just fine. I think it's really helpful to eat the whole animal nose to tail. So the reason for doing that is you get like a really good blend of all the different amino acids. Like people have started eating just muscle meat, right? Just steaks. And and that I think is a problem. So um, eating nose to tail, I think is... um, really helpful. And then, yeah, vegetables, as many different plants as you can possibly eat. Um, we know from, we have good data on the Aborigines, for example, that they ate 146 different plants in each one week. And, you know, go do the, go do that calculation, like record everything you eat 
for a week and see how many different plants types of plant you eat now and it's probably you know maybe even less than 10 so as many different plants as you can lay your hands on and then it doesn't necessarily need to be another a low carb diet so that's another kind of straw man argument i've seen batted about and you know, people are saying that the paleo diet is a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet and it can be but it doesn't have to be so the sources of carbohydrates which i think work much better than than wheat or uh, corn for example are things like um, sweet potatoes or maybe white rice doesn't have some of the same problems as brown rice and then um, also fruit as well obviously here in California in Silicon Valley there's no end of good fruit so um, and then the final thing is, is fat of course and um, coconut uh, oil and uh, ghee and lard and tallow um, so most people on a paleo diet are eating a fairly high fat diet so when I say fairly high fat I mean 50% of their calories are coming from fat. So it's pretty kind of that part is like difficult to get your head around, you know, like most people are not used to eating that much fat, but it's, it's great. Like there's, you know, what, what's not to like about bacon and eggs. It's a, it's um it's a great experience eating that way. Yeah. And so where did the idea that consuming fat leads to gaining weight come from? And is this a misconception? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Just, um, I mean, people almost try and invoke, you know, the laws of thermodynamics and and, and other stuff that doesn't apply in in when it comes to to weight gain. But your body just doesn't work like that. It's not as simple as calories in, calories out. In the same way that, you know, maybe you're to try and force some lumps of coal into your gas tank. Well, in theory, there's thousands and thousands of calories in that lump of coal, but nothing's going to happen when you push it into the gas tank of your car, because that engine is just not designed to combust that, that type of fuel. And so for most people, not everybody, but if you have a weight loss goal or a fat loss goal, I should say, then really you're looking for the system to be as inefficient as possible. Does that make sense? It's kind of a difficult thing to get your head around, but in biochemistry, in some respects, you want it to be inefficient so that you use more energy, right? So this allows you to eat more without gaining weight. So, you know, understanding the biochemistry, I think, is kind of really important when to, when you're trying to, like, decide whether or not fat makes you fat. Interesting. Could you delve into that more? What do you mean by you want to maximize the inefficiency? So um, humans, so you think about it, we're hardwired to survive. Like, your body isn't trying to kill you. It's, like, going to do everything that it needs to do in order to survive. So, you know, imagine a thousand years ago, do you think you really would have been able to get access to the canteen at Google 24 seven? No way. Like you would have had to work hard for your food and maybe you went hungry sometimes. And, um, you know, when you caught something, you probably ate only that food for a while. And so it's been an evolutionary advantage in order to be super efficient with the food that we capture, right? So you just get really good at storing things. If there's anything going wrong in your body, uh, your brain says, oh, this doesn't look good. We better store some fat for a rainy day. And, and so that's what happens. You put on fat because you're unhealthy. And so you need to take this into consideration. Like if your goal is to get lean, you know, first get healthy and then you will get lean afterwards. And um, yeah. So are you suggesting that people should try to fast intermittently? No. So I don't think that's necessary personally. So there's some really good evidence that shows that intermittent fasting has a number of benefits uh, for longevity. Um, 
But I don't think that's necessary, personally. It's not something... So most of the people that I work with, they're kind of... They're not chronically... They're not seriously ill, but they are slightly sick. You know, we've done some lab work and maybe we found a parasitic infection or some bacterial overgrowth, or maybe they have low levels of hormones like cortisol or testosterone. And I see intermittent fasting as a type of stressor. And maybe if you're already under a lot of stress, then now is not a good time to add to that stress with intermittent fasting. So it's not something I'd recommend that everybody jump into, but there is some interesting research out there that I would encourage people to read. Okay, well, so let's talk about another example. So I'm a software engineer, I'm sitting in the office, I've had my bacon and eggs in the Mm -hmm. morning before coming into the office, and it's about... 10.45 or 11, and I'm starting to get hungry, and I don't want to eat lunch yet. I want to have some sort of snack. What can I munch on? I mean, in in my history uh, as a software engineer, I would always go for nuts, and it would never really be the best outcome. I would eat too many, and I wouldn't get full, or what are the snacks that a paleo practitioner should go for? Um... Yeah. So in a way I see snacking as a system fail, right? Imagine if, you know, you were trying to, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, but if you can't make it from point A to point B without getting hungry, then you did something wrong at point A, Mm. right? So I think that you didn't eat enough fat for breakfast. So if you had, um, say three rashes of bacon and two eggs for breakfast and you got hungry at 11 o'clock and you were hoping to not be hungry until, you know, this lunch invite that you had that day at 12 or one or something, then I think it's as simple as the fact that you didn't eat enough for breakfast. So either add more bacon or more egg or eat an avocado and then try it again the next day. Like, did you get hungry at 10 o'clock again the next day? And if you did, just keep adding more food. And eventually, so this is one of the problems is like people have become incredibly disconnected with the way that they feel. And it's so easy now, you know, you know what all offices are like, there's a soda fountain on every corner and there's machines full of crap food and there's canteens with questionable choices. And so with this ready access, it's really easy to make the bad decisions and then become out of touch with your feelings of satiety and hunger. And getting back in touch with that, I think, is is the trick, right? Like knowing how much you should eat at each meal and then not over-consuming either, like dial it in. But to answer your question specifically, um, you know, I think a high fat snack is probably what you're looking for. You don't want to eat something which is going to exacerbate the energy swing problem. So probably not carbohydrates. So maybe you could eat um, half an avocado or maybe a handful of nuts or maybe a piece of fruit might be helpful. But I would think that probably fat or protein would be a better solution if you find yourself feeling hungry in between meals. What about liquids? What liquids should a engineer be drinking and how much should they be drinking coffee soda water tea yeah so i've I've, i think i've yet to meet someone that can get away with drinking calories on a regular basis right so I'm, i'm looking at you high fructose corn syrup you know like drinking coke on a regular basis i've just not seen anyone do that and pull it off honestly so um i think you know water obviously just any kind of liquid that doesn't contain calories is probably the best. Um, coffee is being is like a really mixed bag. Like I see some people that do fine on coffee and it doesn't affect them at all. And then I've had other people, engineers in particular, that do this experiment. They're like, well, okay, I keep waking up at 
two o'clock in the morning, um, okay, let's try a caffeine-free experiment. And they, they just can't believe it, like, you know, the, the difference that it makes. And they thought that maybe they were drinking coffee too late, that they couldn't have it before, after 2 p.m., say, but it's not. It's like they had to eliminate it completely. And once they did, it, it totally changes their sleep. And, of course, the sleep can change everything. It can change your energy levels. It can change your ability to concentrate. So, um, yeah, I mean, drinking, I think, just water. Like, what's wrong with water? That's what I drink now. How much water do you drink? So just let your thirst be your guide. So this, again, comes back to this point that I make, that you need to be in touch with the way that your body, the signals that your body is sending you. And again, like there's so much misinformation out there. Um, I've just interviewed um, a guy, his name's Professor Tim Noakes, and he's done a great deal of really good work on the problem of overhydration in athletes. And uh, he's an amazing guy. He's been cited over 16,000 times in the scientific literature. He's like a pretty intimidating guy to interview, but absolutely amazing. But yeah, so that's that's kind of been a, a big part of his life's work is investigating this problem of overhydration. And the reason people overhydrate is because we've been told by companies that sell drinks that we need to avoid this problem, this disease that is hydration, when in fact, no such disease exists. And that if it's impossible, like you cannot hurt yourself by restricting fluid willfully, like you will be forced to to drink if there's a problem. So you really don't need to worry too much, I think, about hydration. Just let your thirst be your guide. And one of the interesting things I think that comes around the coffee point that you just mentioned is that people have different metabolic rates. So you Mm -hmm. can't just say, oh, you know, I read this article that said coffee was fine. I can drink two cups. I can drink eight cups. I can drink one cup. There's really no hard and fast rules because it all depends on your own personal biochemistry. You Mm -hmm. may be a very slow metabolizer of caffeine. So if you drink one cup of coffee in the morning, maybe that caffeine still hasn't metabolized by the time you're waking up at two in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I can't remember with the genes, but I think I am a very fast uh, caffeine metabolizer. So yeah, for me, it's like nothing, 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 nothing. And then I get up to like 500 milligrams or maybe even I used to do, I used to take caffeine before the start of a bike race and I would take like two grams of caffeine and that would be like, that would seriously light a fire under me to start a bike race. But yeah, do you really want to pay the price for the, with your sleep later that night? Yeah, so it's like kind of up to you as an individual. You take this thing, you've read this article, you've seen this research paper, it's given you this idea. Well, who knows how it applies to you and your particular biochemistry. So you've got to do the experiment to see how it applies to you. One interesting story I've heard from your writing and your podcasting is this story where you were training too much. You got sick from training on your bike too much. And I don't know if there's a great analogy to draw here, but I know all kinds of engineers that just work so hard. They work really, really long hours. And I see these awful diminishing returns and these negative feedback loops where people get really addicted to the, you know, these small little dopamine bursts from, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing, oh, I'm going to solve this small problem today and it's really going to get me excited and I'm going to go in and do it again tomorrow. And then they just burn themselves out or they don't think about the things outside of work. So maybe you could tell this story about overworking yourself. And if there are any parallels you can draw to the world of software engineering, that'd be great. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got into a trap. I'm an amateur. At the time when I first started all this, I was an amateur bike racer. And all the things that I've learned over the last few years has 
allow enabled me to upgrade and, and race pro. Um, but of course, the same thing as you described can happen with any type of addiction, like anything that gives you a reward, then you can become addicted to that re reward. Like it gives you less pleasure in the, in, 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 as you keep doing it and then you have to do it more and more and more. And so this vicious cycle is formed. And um, yeah, it's, it's a real problem. I'm just trying to think of a good analogy for you in software engineering. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think, you know, one, one example was you, you broke your leg during mm -hmm. a race and and then you just continued to exercise uh and you didn't really deal with the acute scenario maybe an analogy here might be you know the engineer that works super hard and then you know uh in the middle of a project comes home and uh you know maybe has a fight with his spouse and then he doesn't really deal with that he just continues to work through it and sort of use the work addiction as a uh, you know, as a salve for the problems at home. Um, maybe that's too far-fetched. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's true. So, um, you know, the vicious cycle is, so as you get more and more tired, more and more fatigued, you look more and more to these things that makes you feel good. So for me on the bike, like I would feel dreadful trying to warm up to get going on the bike. But then once I did, you get that little rush of the catecholamines and some of these neurotransmitters like you already mentioned, uh, dopamine. Um, then you start to feel good again. And your brain kind of subconsciously knows that and seeks out that same behavior to try and get you going when you're in this state of extreme fatigue. Right. Okay. Let's talk some about Nourish, Balance, Thrive. This is a company that you founded or you co-founded. Mm -hmm. So... If I called Nourish Balance Thrive right now for a consultation, I mean, what? So, what does that what does that entail? Well, tell me about what your business does for your patients. Well, the shortest way to describe it is just I help people feel better. It's really that simple. And the the kind of the lab tests that I do can be really helpful for figuring out why people don't feel good. But I spend the most of my time doing diet and lifestyle coaching, like explaining to people. Um, some of the things that I've learned over the last few years, which have enabled me to feel better. And, you know, when I first got into this business, I thought, well, is it just me? Am I a special flower? But now, you know, 400 people later, um, absolutely no doubt that the same system um, works for other people, too. And um, I do free consults and they're only 15 minutes long. But usually I can think of like a thing or two that helps people even in that 15 minutes. And um, if you're already doing some of the things that we talked about, say you're already eating a paleo diet and you're prioritizing sleep and you're managing stress and you're moving appropriately, so you're doing lots of walking and then occasionally lifting heavy things and you're still not feeling better. So maybe you're still bloated or you've still got anxiety or you've still got brain fog or your libido still sucks, then, um, then I think that's a really good time to get into the testing. So I do spend a lot of time ordering these tests and looking at the test results. And I'm looking for what a doctor would call subclinical things, right? So things which are not disease, but we still know are a potential issue. And by dealing with those kind of subclinical, less serious things, you quite often see a complete resolution of problems like brain fog or fatigue or anxiety. And tell me more about the process of starting that company because you were working at a hedge fund and then you made this transition to 
starting this company. Um, and I think, you know, this sounds almost like part of your treatment, you know, going from doing something that maybe you were somewhat passionate about to something that you clearly really love. Um, I think this can be a giant piece of stress reduction. Um, so maybe that's analogous to the, t- to the types of anti-stress treatments, the, the lifestyle treatments that you provide. But so, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the story of that transition. Yeah, it's kind of, I hear what you're saying with the stress reduction, but in some ways it's not, and I'll get to that. But yeah, okay, so um, I spent, do you know how it's like, what it's like when you're a software engineer and you've been in a job a little bit too long and you just find yourself doing too much of the stuff that really sucks and not much Actually, of the new Actually, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that because the longest I've worked at a job is eight months. I, I think that's a really smart move. You know, there's like kind of, you, you just accumulate systems that nobody else understands, like baggage, and, and you end up just doing kind of horrible QA work and, and bug fixes all the time. And like all the new and exciting stuff just goes to the new engineers that get hired. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the end of my days at the, working at the quantitative hedge fund, I was spending nearly all of my time integrating new fixed connections. So fix is a protocol that financial institutions use to talk to each other. And, uh, you know, once you've done one, you've, you've kind of nearly done them all, you know, like it, they don't change that much from one to the other. And so... Um, just doing this over and over again can become quite monotonous. And I realized I got to the point where I didn't really have much fun with that job anymore. And at the same time, I was getting into the diet and lifestyle coaching. And I was spending a lot of time with um, Jamie Bush, who's the CEO of Nourish Balance Thrive. She's the medical doctor and talking about her experiences in a primary care practitioner's um, office. Right. So she has 15 minutes to deal with your problem when you walk in um, to discuss something with her. And so she was pretty unhappy. And so we got together and started this business. And it just one day, it just got to the point where I was like, you know what, I just can't do this job anymore. I can't work at this hedge fund anymore because I just don't care about what I'm doing anymore compared to this other stuff that's on the side. So I just I just went for it. It was kind of a bold move, especially as I just had a baby. My daughter was only about one at the time. But I'm so glad I did it because now, you know, I have this life that I love you know I love doing this work it's such an incredibly fulfilling and addicting experience to help someone feel better and and then also it's 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 liberated me from an office right so most people they will obviously they want you coming to come into the office and work and now I can just work at home all day long and my daughter's nearly two now so um you know I can spend as much time as I like with her which is just fantastic it's so liberating but to to, to kind of touch on your point about stress reduction, I'm not sure it is very good for stress reduction. And, and, and the, the mindfulness meditation has been, I think, extremely helpful for me to, for managing the stress. Because, I, I, I mean, you know what it's like. Starting a small business is incredibly stressful. Like you go from basically just having to show up and somebody's going to pay you a decent salary and having health insurance and all of that good stuff to this place where you have to understand how um, QuickBooks and accounting and like employment law and all this kind of stuff works, which it's is actually, an, an... it's actually been the inverse experience for me because oh, when, really? I, when I was working at a job, I would constantly think like this risk profile doesn't make any sense to me because mm-hmm. if I if I leave my job, if I leave my conventional desk programmer job and I go off and do something crazy and I fail. The downside risk is so minimal for a programmer. Yeah. It it almost it makes yeah. no sense to take the conservative route because uh, you, you, there's no long term failure for a programmer. Programmers are not going to be unemployed. Like if there's an if there's an economy in the future where programmers will will not be employable, 
then we've got bigger problems, you know? Like, mm-hmm. probably the dollar isn't even worth anything, or there's some sort of a zombie apocalypse going on. <laughs> so so that, that was what I would, you know, I would just be spending my day, like, I'm thinking, like, oh, okay, i got to write these awful unit tests, and then, you know, I've got this background process in my head that's just shouting at me, you know, it makes no sense for you to be here. Like, the upside uh-huh. is not there. And then so, since since I've gone with that and left the job and... Uh, done something that makes a risk profile that makes more sense to me, like podcasting. Like maybe you know, it's this. Maybe this isn't a, a, a business that can end up with some long-term financial viability, but I think there's some chance that it can. Um, and I think that the the upside of that low probability scenario is so high that it's worth taking the risk. And maybe perversely, uh, I feel less stressed because I have followed that. Uh, low probability, high upside, therefore high expected value mm-hmm. route. Yeah, no, that's a really great philosophy, I think. And, you know, that was that was definitely something that went through my mind as I quit that job at the hedge fund. I was thinking, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen here, right? Like, how long is it really going to take me to get a job if, like, if this thing fails? Right, your um, downside is capped and your upside is uncapped. Right. <laughs> but sometimes I think it's, you know, for me personally, it's better not to keep thinking about that because you don't want that to know there's a safety net, right? I mean, like if you're really determined for something to succeed, then you don't want to know that there's a soft option if you fail. Like, I think it's helpful not to think about that too much, but you're completely right. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a little self-deceptive for me. Like, you know, I like the safety net's there, but whatever. I don't know. <laughs> interesting. It's the interesting, you know, internal mental ping pong uh that we play with ourselves and uh, that you know it's, it's just uh you know programmers that spend so much time in their own head uh well all programmers do you know i think they end up thinking about these different value propositions and mm-hmm. thinking about the psychological processes which actually brings me to a point that you touched on which is meditation mm-hmm. and you know i'm sure there are certain programmers listening to this that are just like okay meditation time to turn off this podcast um, but what, what do you get out of meditation? Yeah, I didn't understand it at all at first. Like I was just, I'm like, what's the point of that? That sounds like a waste of time to me. But, um, so the point of meditation is it's, it's training. It's like learning a new skill like you would any other. And, and in the beginning, like when you first start with a new programming language, it's kind of frustrating because you're like, Flip, I know how to do this in Python. I would have finished this like 10 minutes ago had I just been using Python. And it's very, very frustrating and learning how to meditate is almost the same thing it's just incredibly frustrating but um this tool that i've been recommending to everyone called headspace um is really really good like for some reason everybody loves it and the way it works is it's an app you can get on your phone or you can get it on the desktop as well obviously and um you just listen to this guy andy puddicombe who is a, uh, he's a British guy, actually, and he has this incredible story, which I won't get into now, but basically he went off and, and lived as a Buddhist monk for however many years before starting this business, Headspace. And he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. So you just sit there and listen to him for 10 minutes, and he just walks you through, teaches you the process of learning how to meditate. And so you're not really aware. It's not like, okay, just stare at the wall and try not to think of anything for 10 minutes. It's nothing like that at all. You just listen to his instructions and just do what he says. And it's only 10 minutes, right? You can just put this in your calendar and just keep that appointment like you would any other. And then what you find is, as you get better at it, 
it's not about the 10 minutes that you spend doing it. It's about the way that it allows you to handle stressful situations throughout the rest of the day. So for me personally, you know, whereas before I might find myself getting angry or frustrated or anxious or sad or something else, you kind of, you get this moment like where you realize there's a decision to be made. Am I going to get annoyed about this situation that's unfolding right now? And then you realize, no, I'm not going to get annoyed because it's totally not worth it in the long run. Like, am I going to remember this in five years time? No way. So it's not worth getting upset about. And so you make the right decision to not get upset. And before the guided meditation, you just never would have been presented with that decision. What so is the it's, connection it's, between the 10 minutes that you spend in the morning on the meditation and the experience of potential frustration later on in the day? That's a really good question. And I'm not the best person to answer it. You should get Andy Puddicombe on and ask him that. <laughs> I know it's hard, though, because I've tried to get him on my podcast, too. I don't really know. But just I thought that was what I experienced was I suddenly started getting presented with these decisions. It's just mindfulness, right? So it's having like being conscious of the way that you're thinking, right? It's not just your brain going off on its doing its own thing completely autonomously. It's like suddenly you have this extra layer of conscious that allows you to observe what it is that your brain is doing. And then you can either choose to get embroiled in that craziness that's going on in your mind, or you can choose to not. You can just choose to be an observer of it and not be affected too much by it. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an abstract concept, but you really got to do headspace to try and like, understand what it is that I'm saying. Is garbage collection a good analogy to this? You know, when a, when a programmer is, you know, or when a, when a program is running and it's got all these uh, references to variables that don't matter anymore. And, you know, you've got to spend some time with the processor to actually garbage collect and get rid of those variables. Is that at all analogous to how you feel when you're going through the meditative process? I don't think so, because that suggests that somehow you're getting involved in this craziness that's going on inside your head. Hmm. And I know that's a mistake. Right. So if you if you would if you think about it this way, imagine um, you were sitting by the side of a, a really busy road. Right. You're by the side of 101 and you're watching the cars flying by at, at 60, 70 miles an hour. And, and that busyness of the road is analogous to what's going on inside your head. Like you're thinking about this deadline for tomorrow. You're thinking about whether or not this program's going to work in time for the deadline. You're thinking about you've got to meet someone for lunch. And oh, my God, I didn't go to the gym this morning. Well, so there's all this craziness going on in the road. And what the meditation trains you to do is be a bystander to that. So rather than trying to rush out into the road and stop the cars, as you might have done in the past, like, oh, you know, imagine all these cars screeching to a halt, you actually just sit there by the side of the road and just calmly watch the traffic go by. And the end result is you don't go crazy. Right? So, so maybe it's not analogous to the garbage collection, you know, because garbage collection is like about doing something active and, and cleaning up the mess, right? It's different. Interesting. So this is QCon week on Software Engineering Daily. And I'm curious, what are some tips that you have for programmers who are going to these conferences? You know, you're a very thoughtful guy. What are just some meta tips for how a programmer can best enjoy the conference and walk away from the conference with some improvement in mental health and focus? 
Yeah, so maybe you should try the high fat diet. Like I was pretty much useless in lectures at university and then at conferences in my life as a computer programmer because I just didn't have the ability to concentrate for more than, you know, just a few seconds. And stabilizing my blood sugar has been instrumental to that. So, you know, try sitting down in a hot airless room and concentrate on what somebody's saying for an hour whilst your blood sugar's going crazy. It just can't be done. You're either going to be falling asleep or you're going to be like unable to sit still. So yeah, just um, see if you can normalize your blood sugar ahead of the conference, I think would be a really good idea. And then yeah, that's, that's a really good, that's really, it sounds like a really good experiment to run because, mm-hmm. you know, if it's not going to work out for you, maybe the risk is fairly low because, you know, this is just some time you're going to a conference. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like in between work and not work. So it's a great sample time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? Um, yeah, I would just like to, you know, press home this idea that, you know, this is your responsibility. Like, don't wait. If you're if you're relating to anything that I said today, you know, the fatigue, insomnia, brain fog, anything like that, you know, don't wait for your doctor to solve this problem. Like, they don't know anything about food. They're never going to be able to solve that problem with diet. And so it's kind of up to you to like go and figure this thing out and debug it and do your own experiment and find out what works for you. And just don't like leave it, you know, like this problem isn't going to get any better as you get older. So it's really up to you to take charge and do the experiment now, get on top of it. You're going to live a longer and healthier and happy life. I'm certain of it. Yeah. And I guess I'll close with a quote. I think this is from Hippocrates, but I remember hearing this, let food be thy medicine and medicine Mm -hmm. be thy food. Is that Hippocrates? I'm, every time I try and attribute a quote to somebody, I find out later <laughs> on it wasn't. Like every, every quote that I've ever heard Einstein make is apparently not actually Einstein at all. So, yeah, I will resist the temptation to confirm that is him. But, um, yeah, I've definitely heard it before, and it is a fantastic quote. Okay, great. Well, Christopher Kelly, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily, and I look forward to seeing you at QCon. Great. Thank you very much for having me.